Well, let me start today with just a passage of Scripture here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, I believe I have it on the screen here. Here's what Paul writes to us. Now, I would, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. For I am the least of, all, least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Well, I want to start a new series today, and I've entitled this series Easter People, and it's really interesting because really I had other ideas of where to go after Easter. But, but really processing the Easter story this year and just thinking about this last Monday, God kind of led me in this direction. And so I have this sermon series called Easter People. And it's, it's the idea of living in the reality of the resurrection. And as we put on the, the sign out front that Easter really is not just a day. It is supposed to be a way of life. It's the way we live our life every day that Christ resurrected. He really did resurrect from that grave. And so here's just some, some things as we kind of get into this this morning. The thing about Easter is that it really is not an ending. It really isn't. Sure, Jesus finished his work on the cross. He left his followers. He ascended to heaven. But Easter is anything but an ending. It is a beginning. It's the beginning of something amazing. There is this incredible thing that happens following the Easter story that tells us Easter was not the end. It was just the beginning. Things were just getting Started Now, it's a bit ironic because the reality is for all the, of Jesus' followers, when, when Christ went into that tomb, when Jesus went into that grave, they had, been, they had been thinking, hoping that Jesus would bring a revolution, that he would bring a revolution and he would free all of Israel from the Roman Empire. And so they were just, they, and when Jesus died, their hopes of a revolution died. And, and they think it's over, it's done. Little did they know that it wasn't done. It was just getting started. And that there was actually a revolution coming that they never expected. A revolution that wouldn't just free Israel from Rome, but a revolution that would free all of mankind from sin and death and hell and Satan. That's the reality of what took place at Christmas. Now, the question that I, I, I kind of was drawn to this year, and uh, well... Just look at this, this passage here. And, and here's the thing. When we think about what takes place after Easter, what transpires, there are two key things, really, that undergird the whole Easter story, the whole gospel message. When we think about it here, it, it, number one, it's supported by God's Word. And that's what Paul says in the passage we just read. He said that everything, the death, the burial, the resurrection, it all happened in accordance with the Scriptures. The Old Testament predicted everything that would happen just as it happened. So that's the first thing that supports it. And the second thing, it's supported by God's people. And if you'll note, it tells us in the text there that there were 500, at one point, 500 witnesses that, 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 that saw Christ alive after He was dead. 
that would testify and say, you know what? Uh, yeah, he was crucified and he was pronounced dead, uh, but I saw him alive. I did. And there were scars in his hands and feet and he was alive. 500 people that would testify to that reality. Now here is where this takes us to this question and the question that I was kind of processing this week. How do we get from there to these, these 500 witnesses? How do we get from there to where we are today to where there is estimated an estimated 250 billion Jesus followers, people that would say or claim to follow Christ? How do we get to that point? How, how do we get from those 500 witnesses and their... We're probably a few more at the time that believed in Jesus, but how do we get to where we are today? And I'm not saying that of those 250 million, they're all deeply committed followers like we would be, or that they're even authentically saved. But there are just 250 million people who would claim to believe in Jesus and to follow Him. How do we get to that point? Because here's the reality. As much as they tried to bury the life of Christ, as much as they bear, tried to hide his resurrection, they couldn't. They, they just could not contain his life and his death and the Easter story. They could not bury it in a grave. They tried to. They, they came up with stories. They came up with, but they could not be contained. I love what it tells us in the book of, I believe it's in the book of Acts chapter 1. I don't have it on the screen there, but, but he says this, after... Uh, Jesus had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So there are 40 days from his resurrection to his ascension till he leaves and goes to heaven. And in those 40 days, he proved to them that yes, he was alive. He proved to them that yes, he was the son of God, the Messiah. He proved to them that yes, he was God. And he convinced them that he would return. They were convinced, if they were not convinced Jesus would return, everything that took place would not have taken place. But they, they believed he was who he said he was, and they were convinced he was coming back, and the Easter revolution, which I've titled today's message, the Easter revolution, takes place. Now, let me tell you that I purposely titled this the Easter revolution and not the Jesus revolution. Let me tell you why. There are a lot of people today who believe in Jesus. They think he was a great historical figure. They think he died an incredibly sacrificial, radical death. They, they think his teachings are wonderful. Eh, they just don't maybe buy into the whole savior of sinners, the whole, well, he rose from the dead. They're not sure about those things. And I'm telling you, that, that Jesus would not produce this kind of revolution. The kind of revolution that, that took over the world was the Easter revolution. It's the revolution that proclaims a resurrected living Christ that really did die, really did go into the grave, really did walk out in three days. As we said last week, his heart started beating again. His heart started beating. He came back to life. There were these amazing signs of life that yes, Jesus Christ was a life. And so today I want to talk about how do we, how did this revolution occur and how can we keep this revolution going today? How can we be an Easter people, a people that brings about this Easter revolution even in our world today and, and think about where you want to see this revolution take place? Is it in your home? Is it, is it, is it where you work? Is it in your neighborhood? 
Is it in our church? Where, where will you look around in the world? Do you just want to see this Easter revolution on a very personal level come and take place where the reality of the resurrection, the song we sang, and I chose that. We've never sung that song before. It's a very popular song. And I thought, why aren't we singing this song? But, but, but rising from the ashes of defeat, the resurrected Christ is resurrecting me. Where do you want the reality of the resurrection to bring life into your world? And so we start here. We start here, and there is a question. It's our big idea today. There is a question that every single person, every single person since Christ died and rose again, every single person on the face of the earth has had to deal with this question. And it's our big idea, and it's real simple. Either Easter is either the biggest hoax ever or the greatest paradox ever. That's what it comes down to. Easter is either the, the greatest hoax ever, and there are 250 million people today that just have been fooled by this incredible hoax, and the disciples just stole that body and hid it somewhere, and for 2,000 years, people have been fooled over and over. I mean, I was trying to think how many people over 2,000 years, maybe 10, million, 10 billion people, I don't know how many people have been fooled. It's either the greatest hoax ever, or it's the greatest paradox and what we believe makes all the difference. What do you believe about the Easter story? So there's two important dynamics today we're going to look at. If we want to be a part of this Easter revolution, if we want to see this take place in our life, if we want to see revolutionary things, the power of the resurrection, the reality of the resurrection, come into our life and turn things upside down like it did for these early followers of Christ. And so there's two dynamics. There is something we have to conquer and there is something that we have to change. And I want to look at that today. And we were in 1 Corinthians 15, and we will kind of see these two dynamics. Kind of, if we look into this passage, kind of look in a little deeply, we'll see this. And we'll be in this text next week as well as we go through this Easter revolution and some different aspects of the whole uh, series here. First thing we have to conquer is we have to conquer self. I would remind you of the gospel by which you are being saved. The, the first reality is to be a part of this Easter revolution is we have to conquer self. Now, let me, let me tell you what I mean by that. And, and just think about this revolution that's rooted firmly in the gospel. It begins with the individual and it begins with conquering self. Now, let, let me show you what this looks like. It starts with Jesus himself. Think about this, okay? Jesus had to conquer himself. He had to conquer his flesh. For the whole Easter story to take place, for him to conquer the cross, he had to conquer himself. Remember, he's in the garden. It's the night he's arrested. He's in the garden praying. And what does he pray? What does he tell the disciples? The spirit is what? Willing, but the flesh is weak. My flesh don't want to do this. My self don't want to do this. I have to conquer myself. Philippians chapter 2, fascinating passage, speaking to this reality. Have this mind among yourselves, writes Paul, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, Jesus was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see how for the whole crucifixion scenario, the whole Easter story to unfold, he had to be obedient. He had to conquer himself and he had to be obedient to what the Father wanted. It all started right in here, right inside, conquering self. But the reality is if you follow the Easter story through it, 
that same thing goes on to the followers of Christ. The followers of Jesus likewise had to conquer themselves to carry on and carry out this Easter message. Immediately after Jesus died, what do all the disciples do? They run away. They fled in fear. They're hiding out. They're afraid that maybe they're next. Maybe the Romans will come for them next. The Jewish leaders will come for them next. They're defeated. They're deflated. And here's the reality. It is not until they conquer what? Their fears and themselves that this revolution really begins to roll, really begins to take shape and take form. Look back here what it says again in 2 Corinthians. Now I would, writes Paul, remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, they received it, in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So there's three things there. You note, note we have received the gospel, Okay, we stand in the gospel and we are being saved by the gospel. So understand the dynamic there. We are saved. Our salvation is done. We are sealed. We're promised a home in heaven. But we are actively being saved. We've talked about this before. It's the three sides of salvation. It's uh, salvation. It's, uh, it's justification. It's uh, sanctification. I'm being saved in glorification one day. Uh, my salvation will be complete in heaven. But I'm already saved. It's done. Nothing can take my salvation from me. But even then, I'm actively being saved. I'm actively living out the gospel, working out my salvation, as we often say. That's the thing. Now, the key here is that how, how do we do this? The, the gospel has to conquer me. It has to conquer self. I have to live out the gospel. Now, understand that this does not mean that I have to do some work. The, the onus is not on me. This is what's so beautiful. And, and oftentimes this is where we get a little sidetracked. We think, okay, i got to try really, really, really hard to conquer myself and then I'll be victorious. That's not how it works. Look, look at this, Acts chapter 1. So right before Jesus leaves, this is what he tells the disciples. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. Why? But to wait for the promise of the, the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And he says, wait. The Holy Spirit's going to come and the Holy Spirit's going to empower you. The Holy Spirit is going to be the power, the one that's going to come. He's going to actually do the empowering, and he does the conquering, even today. Even today, as Paul comes along eventually and expands on the gospel and explains the gospel in greater detail, he, Paul explains to us, it is the Holy Spirit that comes into us and empowers us to conquer ourselves so that we can take part in this whole Easter revolution. That's the reality. Remember, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And Christ, how did Christ conquer the cross? But he conquered it through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. He prayed. He prayed, and the spirit came and empowered him to withstand the cross. How beautiful is that? This is fascinating. Let me show you this. There's three primary words associated with our salvation, okay? Three primary words. Look at this, okay? First, believe. We believe what? We believe that Jesus is God. We believe that we are sinners. 
We believe that Christ came and died on the cross for our sins. We just believe, okay, right? Second is we receive. We receive His mercy and His grace and His forgiveness and His life. We just receive it. It's a free gift. We just receive it. And that's how we're saved. We believe, we receive, we're saved. There's a third word associated with our salvation. This comes to when we live out our salvation. It's the word surrender. We surrender. And basically, we just surrender to what? We surrender to the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit. We surrender to the Christ life. We surrender to the will of the Father. Now, what do all three of those words have in common? There, there's no work on my part. There's no work. So I'm, I'm, I'm saved, how? By the work of Christ in me. And I live out the gospel, I live out my salvation, how? Through the work of Christ in me. In fact, this is beautiful. Look at what Paul says back there in 2 Corinthians, verses 8 through 10. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to also to me, Paul. He had that vision. This is when he saw Christ. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul says, man, I worked really, really hard at this, at this thing to conquer myself and to further the Easter revolution. I worked really, really hard, but yeah, actually it wasn't me. It was Christ in me. And that's the key to really unpacking how we successfully live out the Christ life today and successfully uh, walk worthy of our calling. It's knowing that Christ does the work and the onus is not on me. Here is how we could summarize it like this. Before the gospel can impact the world, it has to conquer the individual. The gospel, the good news, has to conquer you and me. It does. It has to conquer us. We have to surrender to it. Yes, to be saved, but yes, every single day to go into the world and, and to live out the love, the grace, the mercy, the peace, the free, everything that is so beautiful about Christ. That's the reality. In fact, let's personalize that. If I put it on the screen, yes, be, before I can impact the world with the gospel, the gospel has to conquer me personally has to conquer me. Let me give you a few practical examples of what that looks like. First, it has, to, it has to conquer my fear. It has to conquer my fear. The Bible is clear. The disciples were hiding out in fear in the days following Jesus' death. They were afraid. They were afraid of the Jewish religious leaders who had put Jesus to death. But there's this amazing transformation that takes place in their life when you move on into the book of Acts. Amazing. In Acts chapter 4, Peter heals this lame man. And, or in, excuse me, Acts chapter 3, he heals this lame man. He, and it stirs up the whole city. Does this incredible miracle. And in Acts chapter 4, they're all brought in for questioning. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Now, just stop there for a minute, if you would. Just notice that it came to 5,000. So we had 500 witnesses, right? And now we have 5,000 converts. 
So there's a revolution taking place. Something is amazing is taking place. Verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. And I just love how, he, they, how they're defined. They are uneducated, common men. Don't ever believe you can't do anything for Christ, that you can't be a part of this revolution, that you can't turn the world upside down. God can use you in amazing ways. He used those disciples and they were nobodies. Verse 18, so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Don't you love the boldness there? It's like, hey, sit down, shut up, stop talking about Christ's resurrection. Or worse things will happen to you. And they're like, hey, sorry. We can't help ourselves. We just cannot not tell what we have seen and what we have heard. Just just an amazing thing. Just the incredible boldness there. My doubts, think about my doubts. We have to conquer our doubts. We all have doubts, right? we, We live with doubts. We're not normal if we don't have doubts. We pray and God doesn't seem to answer and we wonder, does God even care? We go through a painful situation or a trial and we wonder, does God even love us? We can face a need so great that we even doubt God's ability to help us meet the need. After the crucifixion, just understand that one of the prevailing emotions was doubt. It really was. And we often pin all the doubt on Thomas, right? Doubting Thomas. He's the problem. The reality is that's just so unfair. That was his personality. Thomas was normally just that kind of personality. But the reality is the the women came back from the empty tomb and told the 11 disciples, hey, the tomb's empty. And the angel said, Jesus arose. And all the 11 disciples, what? They doubted. It wasn't until Peter and John ran to the tomb and looked in themselves and saw themselves, then they said, oh, maybe there's something to this story. We looked at the two men last week traveling to Emmaus. They're heartbroken, they're despaired, they're pouring out their heart to Jesus about, oh, our hopes are dashed, it's all over. And in the conversation they said, and we even have these women that came and told us this crazy story that the tomb's empty and Jesus rose again. See, they doubted. That, that was a prevailing emotion. And the reality is, if we want to further this revolution today, we've got to conquer our doubts. We're going, to be, we're going to have doubts sometimes. We're just going to question sometimes. As we go through life, as, as life is difficult, as God is silent, we will struggle with those doubts. How about my guilt? I think of Peter. Remember, remember the story of Peter? And, and what happens with Peter? Three times they come to Peter. Jesus is being arrested and hauled off and three times they come to Peter and said, you're a follower of of Jesus. You're a friend of Jesus, right? Three times Peter says, not me. Even threw a few swear words in to emphasize that he emphatically had nothing to do with Jesus. And then the scripture tells us that at that moment the rooster crows and he looks across the courtyard and his eyes make contact with Jesus. And Peter's heart broke and he went out and he wept bitterly. All, I think all four gospel writers tell that very point, that he went out and wept bitterly. He was heartbroken. And for Peter to take part in this revolution, he's going to have to have God's grace conquer his guilt. 
is going to have to come in and totally conquer his guilt. In fact, I love this story. There's this, this account in the Easter story that's kind of interesting in Mark chapter 16. Um, and so uh, the angel said to the women who come to the tomb, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and tell Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And why does, he sing, why does Jesus have this angel emphasize the name of Peter? Go tell the disciples and make sure you tell Peter, the one who denied me three times. Hey, it's okay. It's okay. I got plans for you. And it took Peter a while. He went back to fishing. It took him a while to sort out all of his guilt. But that's the reality. The other person in the story is Paul. And, and Paul in this text talks about how Jesus appeared to him, right? He had this vision and, and Paul went out and he actually murdered Christians. He was persecuting them. He was that much of an enemy of, of Christ and the gospel. And on the road to Damascus, not Emmaus, the road to Damascus, he is struck down by a bright light and his life is, is turned upside down. And he becomes, he, I mean, he takes this Jesus revolution to uh, this Easter revolution to incredibly new places. Here's what he wrote again. We read it earlier. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, Paul, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by what? The grace of God. I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. And the reality is there is a grace to cover uh, Paul's guilt and a grace to cover Peter's guilt. And I think what is so amazing is that the is that the guilt that both Peter and Paul had to conquer is that the very message they preached, the gospel message, the Easter story, had the very grace they needed to conquer their guilt. Every time they would give a message, every time they would preach, they'd be preaching the grace that would conquer their very own guilt, <clears throat> their very own struggle. And then, of course, there's the issue of pride, conquering our pride. We just have to conquer our pride. And the reality is, when it comes to the gospel, there's no place for us in it. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We need to conquer our grace, our pride. In 1960, two men made a bet. There was only $50 on the line, but millions of people would feel the impact of this little wager. The first man was Bennett Kerf, the founder of Random House. The second man was named Theo Giesel, but you probably know him as Dr. Seuss. Surf proposed the bet and challenged that Dr. Seuss would not be able to write an, an entertaining children's book using only 50 different words. Dr. Seuss took the bet and won. The result was a little book called Green Eggs and Ham. Since publication, it has sold more than 200 million copies, making it the most popular of Seuss's works and one of the best-selling children books in history. At first glance, you might think this was a lucky fluke. A talented author plays a fun game with 50 words and ends up producing a hit. But there is actually more to this story. And the lessons in it can help us become more creative and stick to better habits over the long run. What Dr. Seuss discovered through this little bet was the power of setting constraints. Constraints are not the enemy. Every artist has a limited set of tools to work with. Every athlete has a limited set of skills to train with. Every entrepreneur has a limited amount of resources to build with. Once you know your constraints, you can creatively figure how to work with them. 
There are a lot of authors who would complain about writing a book with only 50 words, but there was one author who decided to take the tools he had available and make a work of art instead. And we all have constraints in our life. We have constraints put there by our uh, Creator. There are constraints of maybe our education, our resources. Maybe it's a painful past. Maybe it's a sin we struggle with. Maybe it's a physical disability. Whatever it is, we have our constraints. But the reality is, it's not about us. We have to conquer ourselves. And sometimes we have to conquer the fact that we think, oh, I, I, I'm so limited. I, I have so many constraints. I have so much weakness. And no, that's what I got to defeat. I got to defeat self so that the revolution can sweep through my life and God can use me to make an impact in this world. I have to conquer my pride because it's not about me. It is about my creator working in me. So how, what's the first dynamic? It is conquering self. Here's the second dynamic. Here's the second dynamic. I need to change my thinking. We need to change our thinking. If we're going to be a part of this Easter revolution, we have to change our thinking. I would remind you, listen to what he says in verse 1, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So there's this Easter revolution, and it starts with with Jesus, right? And it's carried on and carried out by Peter and the other apostles. It's expanded on by Paul to include all the Gentile nations in the world. It's rooted in the resurrection. This, this revolution is rooted in the word of God. It's the word that Paul preached. It's the gospel that Paul preached. Here's the thing about the gospel and God's word. Can I just tell you? It's kind of contrary to our thinking, the gospel really is, it's sometimes hard for our mind to possess. Look at this verse here in Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. And we often apply that to salvation, rightfully so. There's a way that seems right when it, when it comes to being saved and having a relationship with God. There's a way that seems right, but its end is the way of death. You see, here's the reality. When it comes to our salvation, we gravitate toward what? working and earning and God says no it's believing and receiving it's surrendering we're like oh no I just got to work really hard and earn my salvation and God says no you don't you got to believe and receive and, and then you eventually surrender and I work through you Isaiah says that God's thoughts are not our thoughts that his ways are not our ways now there's a word we can use to help us understand God's word and process it when I say the word you're going to say oh yeah this is a great word to describe the thinking of our Creator, the thinking of God, the thinking of Christ, and to describe the word. It's, it's, it's simply this word. It's um, paradox. God's word is full of paradoxes. Christ is a paradoxical thinker. He is. And His ways are not our ways. His teachings are so incredibly paradoxical and when you look at, at, at the things that shape the Easter story there's all kinds of paradoxes in the Easter story and when you look at what happens this revolution that sweeps through the book of Acts and continues to today it's built on all of these paradoxes there's just all of these incredible paradoxes things that just don't make sense to us that's not the way we think but it's the way that Christ thinks let me give you four paradoxes that are perpetuated here in 
the gospel. Because here's the reality. The gospel, the Easter story, is the greatest paradox of all. The gospel, the Easter story, is the greatest paradox of all. And so here are four paradoxes that are perpetuated in the Easter story that we need to grasp onto so that we can take part in this Easter revolution as well. First, when our weakness is a strength. When our weakness is our strength. Think about that. When Jesus is arrested, he looks really weak. He's beaten. He's mocked mocked at. He's spit on. He's kicked. He's, he's, just, he's just made fun of. And he never defends himself. He never says anything. He just stands there and is brutally humiliated. He looks incredibly weak. And on the cross, he even looks weaker. He doesn't respond. He doesn't lash out. He doesn't talk back. In fact, all that he does on the cross basically is say, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. And, and they really didn't. They just didn't, they just didn't really get. They just forgive them. Would you like to start a revolution in your home or at your place of work or in your neighborhood? Learn the strength that comes from that perceived place of your greatest weakness, your humility. Learn the strength of your humility. We often talk about biting our tongue and holding our words, but the reality is Jesus did more than that. He spoke words of undeserved grace and forgiveness and mercy, even from the cross. We need to learn the power of the words that are unspoken, the words that we don't say. We need to learn the power of the words that we speak with grace. We need to learn the power of speaking, not what someone deserves to hear, but what someone needs to hear. There are things people need to hear, not what they deserve to hear. That's Christ on the cross. That's the reality. That's what we need. 1 Corinthians 13, remember what Paul said? doesn't matter what we say if it's not spoken in love don't say it just don't say it when it comes to your words don't make noise make a difference use your words and the reality is there on the christ we see this incredible paradox where the perceived weakness of christ is his greatest strength what an incredible paradox but they they only get better how about the sacrifice that ends in joy we talked about this last week. Remember that word J.R. Tolkien is, is credited or with coining that, 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 that term, a eucatastrophe. That eucatastrophe, that joy that comes out of sacrifice, that triumph that comes out of trial, that happy ending to a story that is a shocking surprise. It's like, whoa, didn't see that coming. And of course, that is the Easter story. And one of the greatest paradoxes in in the world is a simple reality that there is a sacrifice that actually ends in joy. On September 3, 1939, German troops invaded Bielsko, Poland. A 15-year-old girl, Gerda Wiseman, and her family survived in a Jewish ghetto until June of 1942. That's when Gerda was torn from her mother, kicking and screaming. Her mother, Helen, was sent to a death camp. Gerda would spend three years in a Nazi concentration camp followed by a 350-mile death march that she somehow survived. By the time she was liberated by American troops, Gerda was a 68-pound skeleton. And in what must rank as one of the most improbable love stories ever, Gerda actually married the soldier who found her, Lieutenant Kurt Klein. 
There are six glass towers at the Holocaust Memorial in Boston, Massachusetts, representing the six extermination camps where six million Jews lost their lives. Five towers tell the story of unconscionable cruelty and unimaginable suffering, but the sixth tower stands as a testimony to hope. Inscribed on it is a short story titled One Raspberry, written by Gerda Wiseman Klein. Isol, a childhood friend of mine, once found a raspberry in the camp and carried it in her pocket all day to present to me that night on a leaf. Imagine a world in which your entire possession is one raspberry and you gave it to your friend. The true measure of a gift is what you give, what you gave up to give it. One raspberry isn't much unless it's all you have. Then it's not next to nothing. It's everything. The same is true of $2 billion or two mites. Big dreams often start with small acts of kindness. It's powerful when we're on the receiving end, but it's even more wonderful when we're on the giving end. And there is a joy that is found in sacrifice. There's a paradox there that I don't think we've totally bought into. That's the Easter story right there. And Christ gave us his everything, his life. And it's the heart of this Easter revolution because those followers of Christ went out and gave their lives. They gave their lives to further this revolution. They sacrificed themselves for a greater joy. Paul in, in Thessalonians said it this way of his, own, of his own life. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. Wow. I think we often fail to miss, understand this, there really is a joy. There's a certain kind of level of joy. You will find it nowhere else but in sacrifice. And that's why Christ, he knew that from the cross, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the what? The joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. There is a joy that could only be found on the other side of the cross of this brutal crucifixion. Jesus knew that. He knew this eucatastrophe on the other side of the cross and he went for it. An incredible paradox. How about this paradox? This one really gets me. Think about this, the, the sacrifice that ends in joy and then there is the surrender that leads to victory. The surrender that leads to victory. Doesn't that even sound absurd? Can you name for me one war in which the person who surrendered found victory? Think about that. General Lee surrendered at the end of the Civil War, and the the yeah yeah the um the the losing my thought here they lost the Union side won, but really the reality is our country won and all the slaves won. There is a victory to be found in surrender, but only if you think paradoxically, and only if you think of others more than you think of yourself. Sometimes in our relationships, maybe in our marriages and our friendships, we get into fights, we dig our heels in the ground, we're standing our ground and we don't realize that it's when we surrender, that's when true victory comes. We just have to surrender sometimes. That's exactly what Christ did at the cross. He surrendered and we all were victorious. Think again about Jesus. Think again about Jesus, the relationships he had. Think about when he walked the earth, all the tensions Okay, now think about why, why was Christ on that cross? Think, think about this. He was controversial. Was that the reason why? He was a threat to the powers that be, or he claimed to be God. 
Now think about his earthly life. Why was Christ on that cross? Can one of those stick out at you? Let me tell you which is the right answer, why Christ was on that cross to atone for our sin. That's why he was on the cross. That's true, he was controversial. He was a threat to the powers that be, and he did claim to be God. Those are all true. But he was on that cross to atone for our sin. Here's, here's another one. Think about this. So then who put Christ on that cross? Did the Romans put him on the cross? Did the Jews put him on the cross? Who put him on the cross? You know who put Christ on the cross? He put himself on the cross. That's the reality. He put himself on the cross. Listen to John 10.10. John, John's fascinating because John's the only one in Scripture to use this terminology of laying down. And follow this. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 15, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Verse 18, no one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Who put Christ on that cross? He put himself there. He laid down his life for us. So that we can have our sins atoned for. So we can have a relationship with our Father. It's this incredible paradox that there is victory out of surrender. Amazing. You know what's fascinating? So, as I said, Peter's, John's the only one that uses this terminology. So in, in, in John chapter 13, he uses this terminology with Peter. And he, Peter has that conversation with Jesus, Remember? They're in the uh, Last Supper, the upper room. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. What happens? As the crucifixion story unfolds, what happens? Peter does what? He denies Christ three times, right? As I said, he locks eyes with Jesus. He he leaves weeping bitterly. Here's the reality. So Jesus, or Peter failed to do what? He failed to surrender, and he left what? Defeated. When you surrender, you get victory. When you fail to surrender, you leave defeated. That's exactly what happened to Peter. Exactly. One of the incredible paradoxes. And finally, I said John's the only one to use this. For in 1 John, he does it again. By this we know that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Surrender yourself to your people around you in your marriage, in your home, in your neighborhood, at school, in the church. Just surrender and find victory. And finally, one last paradox. It's uh, the death that leads to life. There is a death that leads to life. Maybe the greatest paradox of all, this reality of a death that leads to life. We see this throughout God's creation, right? Think about it. The seed that falls into the ground and dies and comes back to life. The animal that dies and is eaten and sustains life. The individual who dies to self, who conquers self, and in the end, he finds life. Let me give you this verse I shared a couple weeks ago, and this is one of those verses you need to have this concept right here. 
transform your life. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would lose his life will, who would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And, and Jesus has just given us a very simple principle there. He's saying the life you are looking for, who has the life you're looking for? Christ has the life you are looking for. You won't find it in a bottle. You won't find it in a drug. You won't find it in a hobby, a possession, a bank account, on vacation, in another person. There's only one place you're going to find the life you want. You're going to find it in Christ. You die to self. You let the Holy Spirit conquer you. You surrender And you find the life you've been looking for forever. And if you don't think that's true, just look around you. Just study the Hollywood stars. People that have everything, they have all of that stuff and they don't have the life they want. That's the reality. There is a death that leads to life. And in the end, we have this incredible revolution that transformed the world, and it started with these followers, 500 witnesses to Christ's resurrection who took that message and spread out. And understand that of those 500 witnesses, most of their stories are not in the Bible. There's a handful of stories in the Bible of his apostles and his followers that we know by name, and we have their stories. There are a lot of those witnesses who spread out all over the world taking this message, and it transformed the world, and we ended up today with 250 billion people who would claim, who would claim to be followers of Christ. It's the Easter revolution, a revolution of hope and love and joy, and ultimately life, where we conquer self and we change our thinking and we answer this one big question, Easter is either the biggest hoax ever, or it is the greatest paradox ever, and I contend it is indeed the greatest paradox ever of all times. So, where do you want a revolution to sweep through your life? I'm telling you, if you trust Christ, he will. We're going to walk through this in the next several weeks. And what did this revolution look like? And what's involved in it? How did it change the world? Seriously, how did it change the world? How far are you on your spiritual journey of salvation this morning? Considering, maybe you're thinking, I'm just kind of pondering this whole Jesus thing. Maybe you're at the point of, well, I believe but I'm not sure I want to receive him as a savior. Maybe you're at the point of receiving him and you are a born again, a new creation in Christ. And then you're at the point of surrendering. If we know Christ, that's the next step. It's just surrendering to him. It's just saying, you know what? I'm going to give you a chance with my life because you know what? I've messed things up pretty bad. And deep inside, I'm not happy and I'm going to surrender and I'm going to see if these paradoxes that we saw this morning, if that's true for my life as well and I'm going to surrender. And what part of self does Christ need to conquer in you today? Just ask yourself that as you leave here. And at the same time, is there a specific paradox that you can embrace this week that will help you live out the reality of the resurrection? And then just ask yourself, where do you want the Easter revolution to take part in your own life? There is a flyer over there as we leave today, and I would encourage you to to look at it. Um, I'll pull them down. They're in the thing. Um, we came up with this, uh, <clears throat> this idea called the, the second, uh, how did I coin that? Um, the spring second look campaign. But what it really is, is we have devised three different areas of the church that we want to 
emphasize or focus on. We want to plug everybody into at least one area. You can sign up and be a part of all three areas, but there are three areas. There is one area that's just going to simply look at this idea of outreach. How can we take um, our facility? How can we take our building and, and best use what we have been given by God to reach our community? And what can we do? And so we're looking for ideas, and we're going to have a, a group that's going to get together and just discuss that and look at putting together our calendar for the year and those opportunities to reach out to the community around us. The second community is, or the second group is those are going to get together and just look at how do we, um, what do we need to do on Sunday morning to just present ourselves to welcome people that come in here. Uh, to be more welcoming, what are the things we need to do to improve in those areas as uh, God sends us more faces? And uh, we're going to work on that, shore that up. And then thirdly, the third group is a prayer group that's going to get together and is going to pray for this church and pray for how God wants to use us and pray for the doors that he's opening and, and pray for the people that you uh, give to us to pray for, those names of people that we need to pray for. God's doing amazing things here. He really is. He's just uh, blessed us with this building and we had an amazing Sunday last Sunday, amazing Sunday today, but last Sunday, of course, for Easter was just incredible. But anyway, so before you leave, make sure you grab one of those, and then next week we'll have a sign-up sheet there, and if you want to sign up to be in all three groups, you can, or whatever, and we'll work out some of the dynamics of that. Let's close in prayer today. Father God, thank you so much. I want to thank you for just the paradoxes that, that are wrapped up in the Easter story. I want to thank you, Lord, for Peter and Paul. I want to thank you for those men that they put their life on the line. They sold themselves out for the gospel. They started this, this revolution. Well, you started it, but they continued this revolution. And Lord, we want to keep it going today. We just want to, in our own community, in our own corner of the world, we want to impact the world for Christ. And so, Lord, show us what that looks like. Help us understand in our homes, on our jobs, in our neighborhoods, at school, here in our church, and just around the church here, Lord, how we can see that reality of the resurrection impact our world, impact our life, impact our existence. Lord, now I pray for each one that's come today. Bless them as they go home. Give them a, just give them a, just, a, just a real sense of encouragement as they leave here today challenged from the word and renewed to face the week ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.